I literally stopped researching and writing this chaser five minutes ago. I've been fucking tinkering and reading shit nonstop for days. There's still more. There's more, constantly more. It's insane. And I'd never heard of it. Mm. It's like I was the Gabe of finding this out. I was like, oh my God, I have never heard about this, which is wild because it's so insane. But anyway, yeah, let's- I'm excited. Oof. In the way that we all know you mean. Yeah. Welcome to SVU Pod Especially Heinous. I'm Gabe. I'm Tasha. We're on season five, episode nine, Control. This is a fucking amazing episode. I loved everything about this fucking episode. I did too. I was at the edge of my fucking seat the entire time. I watched it twice. Yeah, I like vaguely remembered parts of it, but I didn't remember much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Opening scene. A man and his granddaughter, who is fucking adorable, by the way. She's so cute. Mm -hmm. She's got this little red beret on. She's totally like, what's that 90s little Matilda? Matilda. That's it. She had a Matilda vibe going on. Mm -hmm. So him and his granddaughter are riding down an escalator. Pause. Pause. This man, okay? Mm -hmm. Hold on to your seat, Gabe. This man playing the grandfather... I'm going to give you three guesses as to who you think it is. Just just like random guesses in the world. Who is this guy? Tom Hardy. <laughs> no. Somebody from MASH. Okay, no. A guy that got eaten by a dinosaur in the first Jurassic Park. I don't fucking know. Okay, this, <laughs> this dude is fucking Mickey goddamn Hargitay, Marishka's dad. No. This is her dad. Don't be fooled, okay? Don't be fooled by this wispy-haired, white, gentle old man. This guy was a fucking stud heartthrob, fucking basement flutter in his day. In the 60s and 70s, it was just like, holy shit, this dude. Whoa. He and Jane Mansfield were divorced just a few years before she was killed in a car accident. Oh. He'd actually quit acting in the early 70s, but then popped back up in 2001 and acted in this Hungarian movie because he's from there, mm-hmm. obviously. Marishka, you know, da-da. and then this spot on his daughter's little show in 2003. His daughter's cute little show. I know, Dad. Do you want to? Do you want to just have a little guest spot? He's like, yeah, but something small. I don't want to. I don't take the spotlight. I'll just do just a couple lines on your little show. Oh, it's so cute what Marishka's doing these days. <laughs> but yeah, and then he died a few years later in 2006. Okay. Okay. So she's asking all of these questions about who made the world (laughs) and he's trying to answer her. He's saying, well, some people believe in God and others believe in the Big Bang. But at the same time, out of the corner of his eye, he's watching on the opposite side of the escalator going up because there's a dude struggling super hard and he's kind of covered in blood and asking, he's kind of covered in blood. He's fucking covered (laughs) in blood. (laughs) He's drenched in just a touch of blood. (laughs) He's just yeah, no biggie. As they get closer, the grandpa can see that the dude is bleeding from his junk area. And it's that one guy. I've seen him in a million things, but what? He's bleeding from his junk what? area. You should be a fucking well, medical examiner. His wiener and testiclites were probably bleeding. <laughs> okay. He's that one actor. I figured you knew who he was. I don't know. I've seen him in a million things. Oh, yeah. He, okay. This dude has a super long list of credits, okay? Oz being one of the reoccurring roles that he had as William Giles. I never got super hmm. into Oz, so I don't know if anybody knows who that was. He Ugh. played in multiple episodes. I don't remember him, but I, I love that show. And his other very notable role was the voice of Gurgle, the germaphobic anxious fish from the tank at the dentist's office in Finding Nemo. <laughs> 
Yeah, he's been in a ton of stuff. He's like a yeah. one of those character actors that's in a lot of stuff, but I don't know who he is. Yeah. So this dude loses his balance and falls down the escalator while it's going up, which I know isn't funny, but I was just like, is he just going to keep going forever? <laughs> And I don't feel bad saying that about him now because no. he's a piece of shit. Yeah. Now CSU and SVU are on the scene. Benson interviews the grandpa, a.k.a. her father, which oh. I didn't know until right now. What a fun little moment for them. I know. The grandpa says that the injured man was gibbering nonsense and his belly was bleeding like a stuck pig. And then he fell. The man and his granddaughter rushed to check on him. And when they got to him, he was still babbling. So he called 911. Grandpa says that the dude kept saying, it's a mistake. It's a mistake. Stabler says the victim is Horace Gorman. He has been taken to the hospital and they think he's going to be okay. Benson's like, what the fuck happened? Then a cop walks by and says, still haven't found the package. Turns out Horace's penis and testicles See, I did it right Good there. Good job. Good job. Very official. No. Turns out Horace's penis and testicles were cut off and are still missing. <gasps> First missing dong of season five. Season five Ooh. theme song. My mama, my missing dicks. <laughs> my mama, my missing dicks, 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 dicks. Dong, dong. Dong, dong. Oh. <coughs> Love you. Love you so much. You know what? I thought of the Missing Dicks theme song thing, and I knew you would add something great to it, and that was even better than I thought. I love you so much. Oh, my God. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> dong, dong. Okay. <laughs> so now we're in the hospital. SVU is interviewing Horace. He's got bruises all over his face and his head wound, along with missing D&Bs. Mm, 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 mm. he's having a hard time remembering what happened he remembers the train doors opening to the subway and stepping onto the platform he couldn't tell if anyone was watching him or following him he kind of pauses and says i keep my eyes to myself and i was like hmm that's interesting hmm, what a weird thing to say yeah he also doesn't remember saying it's a mistake he says all he remembers is being hit on the back of the head horace tells benson and stabler that when he woke up he remembers a wild man wearing black rags shouting about a judas tree and him running off he then starts to cry and he's like i'm not a man anymore uh, in the precinct, Benny and Staves go over the case details with Cragen and the squad. Benson thinks Horace didn't want to be a man anymore because the doctor said the blade that cut his genitals off was sharp like a scalpel. Fucking to me, that is a wild jump, like a wild. The initial statement, I think, could be considered a wild jump. Quote unquote, not wanting to be a man anymore slash like not wanting your genitals anymore. Those those can be two different things. But we didn't have the verbiage for that spectrum at the time, I don't think. Yeah. But I mean, like to go from a guy in a subway with his dick and balls cut off to their first speculation is him being yeah, like, he true. was going for gender affirming surgery. Right. And then, yeah. I, I didn't think about you know. that. Like, that's the first thing. She's like, you know what we need to consider before we consider an attack in the subway? Right. Uh, is a well thought out, planned and scheduled surgical procedure. Right. Okay. Staves responds with saying, um, you think he wanted his Johnson hacked off. If you don't have a dick, what's life? You know, yeah. I have four kids. <laughs> okay, so Munch jumps in. He speculates that it could have been cult activity and uh, is talking about ancient Rome and how they castrated themselves to be priests, etc. And Toots is like, huh, how do you know that? And Munch is like, the internet, which... <laughs> Strikes me again. It's, I know we've talked about that. Munch is a fucking interesting guy. Okay. Like two seasons ago, he was like 
fucking internet. Fuck the internet. What is this? A telephone in my pocket? <laughs> and now he's like, you know what I found out on the fucking internet? It's like my dad being like, ugh, people just looking at screens and now you'll find him at midnight at his house watching fucking YouTube boat videos. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So Cragen jumps in and says, okay, either Horace was snipped by a homeless guy or had a voluntary penectomy. Not a word I get to use every day. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, especially this season, you know, <laughs> penectomy. He's just double Dutch and waiting for his turn to jump in. Oh my God. Penectomy. It's like 30 years ago, I joined the squad just <laughs> waiting to be able to say penectomy. I can quit. Hand me my suit and pretzel and I'm out of here. <laughs> Okay, details on the guy. Horace is wealthy and retired. He's 62 years old. He invented games that are under bottle caps. Like, the first thing I thought of is when Snapple did it with baseball. I was so close Mm -hmm. to having a full roster. I think it was home plate or third base that I was missing. But, like, I had every position. Mm -hmm. Also, his hobby is historic preservation. He's never been arrested. He doesn't have a history of mental illness. The squad thinks that if Horace had the procedure done voluntarily, he may have just freaked out and run away after, not giving whoever carried out the procedure time to stitch him up which again okay Mm. munch googled castrator and got a link to a website for dr amos dudiev who runs a what they called quote genital chop shop and people pay him to castrate them this is where i'm like this is annoying everybody's fucking holy shitting over this existing when they work in svu by the way the only one who should still be surprised by it i feel is toots because he's the newest to the squad and he could be like oh this is new and wild and the rest of them should be like yeah catch up but instead they're all like jesus christ there are plenty of reasons people with penises don't want a penis okay just because you guys are obsessed with your dicks doesn't make it true for everyone i'm talking to Mm -hmm. anybody holding their dick right now fucking relax. (laughs) Dudiev's office isn't far from where Horace was found, so it's possible he could have been there, run off, and was embarrassed, so he blamed what happened on a person experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's that's their first lead. Um, I like how they eventually look at the security footage (laughs) in the fucking subway. They're like, first we gotta check out this doctor who specializes in cutting off dicks. (laughs) At the home of Dr. Amos Dudiev. The doctor's telling Munch and Toots that he does castrate men and he does it on his kitchen table. Mm -hmm. Yeesh. Mm -hmm. This fucking dude is a Russian actor who was also in Castaway as Wilson the Volleyball. (gasps) No, he was (laughs) No, he was not. No, he wasn't. Oh my God. I was like, was he the voice? And I was like, wait, there was no voice. (laughs) Uh, No. There was no voice. Why did I say that? (laughs) I, I was that was a that was a hilarious joke. Okay, so this is his second of three appearances on SVU. He shows mm. them his state license to practice medicine in New York. He's licensed as an allergist though. Okay. <laughs> and Toots is like, like I'm Toots. still a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Toots goes, This doesn't give you a fucking license to relieve men of their peckers. This is where I pause and I go, All right, penis, genitals, Johnson, peckers. If they don't say wiener this episode, they're gonna be receiving a strongly worded letter from one Gabe Joyner. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you could uh, call a dick, they they call they call a dick. I was trying so hard not to say wiener. They're, the judge is like his hot ham and sausage. Like the like, <laughs> what else can you come up with? Uh, so in this guy's kitchen, there are bright operating room lights and operating tools all over the place. Dudiev says he isn't doing anything illegal. The detectives show him Horace's photo, and he's like, "Oh, no, I don't know that guy." So next. How is he not doing anything? 
anything illegal. I <laughs> I mean, I don't know. In the subway, CSU Captain Judy shows Benny and Stabe's bloody footprints. So these footprints lead to a pool of blood in a doorway. And fucking Benny goes, any sign of the missing goods? CSU Judy's like, do you mean wiener detective? Not yet. <laughs> Just then, a uni yells over at them that he found blood drops near some campsites in an abandoned subway tunnel. And it looks like a lot of people have set up residence there. You know, like a, mm-hmm. um, what would you call it? Like a tent city. Tent city, yeah. Uh, the cop pulls someone out of their shelter super fucking aggressively and our detectives run up yeah. like okay Dale go look around for some more shit and let her go Yeah, she's scared she looks very dirty and she tells Benny her name is Dot pause Dot is played by Abigail Savage she played Gina in Orange is the New Black remember Gina remember Gina? she was one of Red's lackeys and she got burned and then she had that like big burn on her neck <gasps> she yeah yes yeah they both give off like you know how like in West Side Story there was that girl that was like I want to be part of the gang you know what I mean yes yeah tag along energy yeah yeah but like badass though but she was very like, yeah like, she was very she was very like crew loyal to Red I know exactly who you're talking yeah. about yeah and she also played Bunny in Precious but she mostly th- this is interesting I think she mostly does sound department stuff which mm. I found I found this super interesting because she's had these really big significant roles that people would know her for but most of her shit she does is the sound department she's got 106 credits just like doing different sound shit oh cool I mean, obviously she's good at it. She's not the one banging two slats of wood together when somebody busts through a metal door. <laughs> I'm never going to get over that. What was that from, like, season two? No, I, I, don't, I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. Okay, so we're talking to Dot. She says she saw someone come down the tunnel earlier but won't tell the detectives who it is because this person would cut Dot's eyes out. Benson presses her, and she's like, okay, the person is Samuel. He sees everything. Dot saw Samuel come into the tunnel that morning and his hands were bloody. He said he had just gotten an offering, a human sacrifice. She tells them that Samuel lives, quote, down below at the Grand Center. Mm -hmm. So under Grand Central Station, it's crazy to me how many undergrounds there are to the subways. Uh Like... I don't know. It's just weird. It's crazy to me. Under Grand Central Station, an officer that is familiar with Samuel helps Benson and Stabler navigate the camp. Samuel has lived under Grand Central for a lot of years, and he might be violent. They find Samuel's camp. He's not there, but there is fresh blood, and Horace's genitals are in a white paper bag being held by a fucking mannequin. Yeah, and the mannequin is dressed with a white wig and in white clothes and it's very um it's very what is what mm-hmm. is that fucking word uh totem it's very totem from right. fucking dexter remember that season where it was was that tom hank's son doing that shit the totem thing no it was i want to say alan rickman wasn't fucking what is his name i don't remember i'm gonna be no we have to stop sorry it's gonna drive me nuts well they, when they see the bag they're like oh jesus and they open it and they're like okay Mm-hmm. There's some wiener involves in there for sure. <laughs> There's gonna be a dick in that bag. What if it's just a jelly donut? Gross. <laughs> oh my god, Edward James almost. I'm so oh my glad god, from Battlestar Galactica. Yes, and then he's that's from what, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, he's like the puppet master to Colin Hanks, the good Hanks. 
So Samuel shows up. He's dressed in goggles and all black. Mad Max. Yeah. He runs away, but is apprehended, obviously, by Stabler. He's scared of being brought up in the light, saying it will burn his skin, and complains about his eyes when his goggles are being removed. And they're kind of pink and stuff. And I'm looking around, like, where the fuck is Bruce Campbell? Because this is, like, turning into, like, 80s, 90s B-horror movie, and I'm fucking loving it. Oh, Loving it. I looked up his credits. He played Wallace the Pimp in 12 Monkeys, and I was like, ooh, this is also giving some of that i fucking loved that Mm -hmm. movie so now we're in the precinct we're in the interview room samuel is cuffed to a pipe in the wall and he's crouching and covering his face huang comes in to interview him samuel complains about the light hurting him so huang shuts it off and samuel stands up and i'm like ballsy move i know but he's handcuffed so whatever huang's like usually it's a lot fucking darker in here this is weird (laughs) i know right (laughs) He tells Wong his name is Samael and Wong's like Lucifer's name when he was in heaven. Samuel starts talking about how God wants Samael to return to heaven, but Samuel says he belongs in the darkness. Huang asks him if God speaks to him. Samuel says God sends an archangel to speak to him and brings him offerings, the jewels of Sodom. Mm. Samuel says that the archangel is a woman who wears a white hood, carries a shining sword, and cuts the limb from the Judas tree. And Huang's like, do you mean wieners? (laughs) We're talking about wieners here. Huang's like, mm-hmm, okay. And he goes back in to speak with Benson and Stabler. Stabler's like, oh, so Samuel is a Catholic vampire. And I'm like, fuck. Okay. Just a Catholic dad with a big old dick and a juicy butt. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know me. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. And also with you. <laughs> uh, time to get on your knees. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Huang thinks that Samuel actually has a genetic condition called porphyria, which can account for his light sensitivity and his abdominal pain, which I didn't know he had Mm. until that moment. Mm -mm. And porphyria may also be causing his delusions. There is... There is that eyewitness dot that saw Samuel with Horace's junk. He's definitely violent, but Huang doesn't think that he would have gone out onto the subway platform to hurt Horace since the light hurts him so much. Did he have someone bring him the junk? Uh. Cragen pops in and says, let's find out, and tells him that the subway surveillance tapes are there. So now that everybody's watching the tapes, you can see Horace getting off the subway. Then a woman in a white hood goes up to him. They seem to know each other because they're talking, but he walks away from her and she follows him. There's no other camera, so they can't see what happens next to confirm how the attack happened. Benson wants to know why fucking Horace lied about not talking to anyone on the subway. Stabler gets a call. Horace checked himself out of the hospital against medical advice. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah. So Benson and Stabler head over to the apartment of Horace Gorman. The doorman lets the detectives in. Gorman's doorman? Gorman yells for Gorman. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't catch that before. (laughs) Gorman's not home. Norman the doorman asks for Gorman. (laughs) Okay, so this is the fanciest doorman. He's got white gloves, a white bow tie, three-piece suit, a cute little hat that he's carrying, but he is credited as the concierge. So mm-hmm. all, that, all that's saying is this is a fancy building. Also, this is the first of four appearances for this guy, and he plays a judge quite a bit. Like, in all of his roles, he likes to play a judge. At one time, mm-hmm. he played a judge in a show called Random Acts of Flyness. Oh, shit. Yeah. So he's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Gorman's apartment is 
an actual episode of Hoarders. Stacks of newspapers making walkways mm-hmm. around the apartment, brooms, stacks of toilet paper, bottled water. In this absolute ocean of trash, Benson and Stabler immediately find albums with photos of women wearing collars and wedding dresses. And Horace can be seen in one of the photos. They're his binders full of women. They're not open. They're not. Dis- it's not a display. It's a needle in a haystack. And they're like, holy shit, what's this? Mm-hmm. Yep. We only have 48 minutes, everybody. Benson (gasps) recognizes one of the women. She had come to the precinct years prior and told Benny that she had been kept in a basement by someone and forced to marry them. But when the woman came in, she was drunk and Benson didn't believe her. Mm-hmm. Excuse me? It's SVU, you guys. Mm-hmm. It's Benson. Also, it was four years ago. How do you, re- like, this is the same where they remember somebody's face. I mean, they see people and people's names constantly. Especially when you blew her off. It's, it's, it's SVU. How could you blow that up? Yeah, you could. Right, you, right. She was drunk. But then also, it's so? like, how many people do you deal with in a day? And it wasn't significant to you because you're like, oh, I don't believe that shit. If it wasn't keeping you up at night, how do you remember her face? How do you remember? Whatever. Right. The storyline does not track because Benny would never turn a woman away with that kind of fucking story. I don't believe mm-hmm. it. Well, you know what? What? Four years ago, was it was her first year <gasps> oh, at SVU. It was her first year in SVU. Oh, uh, okay. So maybe... Well, there's still no fucking wiggle room because this woman came and told you that she was trapped in a dungeon. Yeah. Back at the precinct, Benson shows Cragen the photos from Horace's apartment. The woman Benson recognized is named Hillary Barclay. She had reported the abuse from the basement four years ago, like Gabe had said. She was kidnapped on a rainy mm-hmm. night by someone offering her a ride and then was brought to a basement and kept there for three months until one day he blindfolds her and dumps her off somewhere. All Benny had mm-hmm. from her was that this guy was a white older male driving a dark two-door car. And so she's like, I didn't I could I couldn't go off of that. I couldn't I didn't have anything. And I'm like, um mm-hmm. if a fucking sliver from the top of a pack of gum can lead to solving an entire case, but okay. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Munch and Stabler also remember her. Okay. What? She was drinking and using. So automatically she's not believable. Maybe she's drinking and using because she was trapped in a basement being fucking raped for three months. But whatever. Mm -hmm. Or coping with anything else. There's going to be a lot of people in crimes that are especially heinous that are going to be like coping in whatever ways they can. Mm -hmm. Rape victims can like, oh my God, just don't even. I know. Okay, so prior to her being abducted, she was drinking and using, and she had missed a court date, and the judge issued a bench warrant around the time that she had gone missing. So they agreed, all of these guys are sitting there agreeing Mm -hmm. that it would have made sense for her to make up a crazy story to get out of the consequences of missing this fucking hearing, okay? Mm. Great, that should help you sleep at night, you guys. Hillary moved out of her last known address two years ago. Hillary's mom is a former supermodel that owns an antiquities shop on Madison Avenue. The fact that they didn't look into that lady's mom being a supermodel and that not making them try to go find her in the (sighs) beginning is like, okay, whatever. It also does not track. Yeah, none of this. But I mean, it kind of does because the people that are most likely to be victimized in this way have often been referred to as people who won't be missed. So it's people experiencing homelessness, That's, people that are in yeah. like the sex industry or the drug, you know. That's why I'm drugs. saying, because she's like the daughter of a supermodel, you'd think. You would think so. They'd think she was important enough, you know? Yeah, but she was also 
Anyway, so Benson and Stabes head over to mom's store. Hillary's mom, Juliet, is played by Jacqueline fucking Bassett. Not only mm-hmm. is she Angelina Jolie's godmother, but also a 60s and 70s iconic hottie in a ton of movies, including Bullet, Murder on the Orient Express, The Thief Who Came to Dinner, mm-hmm. and she played Miss Giovanna Goodthighs in the 1967 Bond movie spoof Casino Royale. <laughs> Good thighs, Johnny. Good thighs. Yeah. <laughs> Juliet says that she and Hillary are estranged. She hasn't seen or spoken to her in two years. She calls Hillary, her own daughter, a fucking junkie and says that she was stealing from her. She was in and out of jail and psych wards and she was lying, which was ruining Juliet's marriages. She's got mm. her arms crossed and goes, the pregnancy with Hillary ruined my modeling career. Mm. <laughs> Stabler goes, sounds like you never wanted her. And she says, women didn't have the choice back then. And the camera zooms hard in on Benny's empathy. The whole thing is fucking yikes, all of it. The way she's talking about her daughter, mm. everything. Benson tells Juliet that Hillary was kidnapped and raped, that the story about her being fucking abducted was true. And Stabler tells Juliet that there's evidence to support the story. Well, my of the year finally fucking hears it and flips how she responds. She's all concerned. She feels bad that she didn't believe her and then tells them, actually, I do have information. Hillary wrote her mom a month ago asking for money. So the mom has her address. I'm like, you could have fucking started with that. They Uh, came and asked about your daughter and you give them this whole fucking story about how you're estranged. Just be like, yeah, she wrote me a month ago. I don't talk to her. Here's her address. Right. Benson and Stabler knock on the apartment door of a Hillary Barclay. She opens it and she gets pissed when she sees Benson is there. She fucking remembers her. Benson tells Hillary that they got her address from her mom. Hillary says that she's clean now and her mom still wants nothing to do with her. Benson tells her that her mom wants to see her now and Hillary is like, screw her and screw you. But she doesn't slam the door. She just leaves it open and walks into her apartment and Stabler walks in first. He tells Hillary that they know that she was telling the truth about her being kidnapped. And she's like, took you long enough. Guess I'm not crazy after all, huh? Benson tells her that she has every reason to be angry with them. Hillary says, you bet your ass I do. Now get out. And I'm like, why did you even let them in? It's like, she didn't okay. technically invite them in. Well, she didn't not. She left the door open. So she was asking for it, Gabe? She was asking for it. Do you see what she was? <laughs> do you see that door? It was wide open. Shit. <laughs> that the door's got a fucking like huge bikini on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I'm it's got a lower that. back tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, it was wearing so much eyeliner. Okay. <laughs> Can you imagine the bikini on a door too? It, like the strings would be like this, just like out like this. Look, like this. <laughs> Stabler tells her that he may be holding another woman and that they're looking for him. Hillary wants to know his name and how they found him. Hillary was at an NA meeting the night he was attacked. Benson asks her to tell them everything she can remember about the basement. She says Horace called it his, quote, party place and that it was a hellhole. She thought she was going to die there. He kept a combination lock on the door. It was cold and damp, so she thought it was a basement. There were no windows. She could hear chanting in a strange language like a satanic cult. That bothered me just because people are like mm-hmm. singing in a different language doesn't mean it's a cult. And this reminds me of the whole satanic panic shit, you know, and then we find out it's in, in fucking Hebrew. <laughs> no shit. Yeah. Well, also like, well, it's evil because I'm relating it to Satanism. It's like, mm, no. Right. It's like, do you know anything about Satanism, actually? Now we're in the precinct. Munch is working on digging up info on Horace. So this dude's never been married and doesn't have kids. Even though he's not Jewish, Horace donated a shit ton of money to a synagogue. 
he funded the restoration of the Bay Barak Temple on the Lower East Side. He actually won an award for putting up so much money for the restoration. They think Hillary was hearing the cantor in the synagogue if she was being kept there in the basement. Munch, Stabler, and Benson are at the synagogue, and they're talking to the rabbi. The rabbi calls Horace their savior. Zing. In 1998, Horace supervised the rest... What? Savior, because Jesus is considered a savior, and they don't believe in Jesus as the savior. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't even... He's, I think he even said, excuse my choice of words, but he was our savior. Oh. And Stabler's like, cute. I'm Catholic. In 1998, Horace supervised the restoration, but was never seen again. He had access to the whole synagogue, including the basement. Toots shows up and tells him that the building used to be an Episcopal church a few hundred years ago, and it was a major stop on the Underground Railroad. There are secret tunnels under the building. So they go to the tunnels. Toots is giving them a little history on the Underground Railroad and says that the tunnels they were in were used to sneak slaves up into Canada. CSU Judy finds a part of the tunnel with this boop, boop, beep machine that she has that tells her the wall there is new and there's a void behind the wall, okay? Mm-hmm. The detectives hang back and watch while two CSU dudes knock the wall open with sledgehammers. They get done and one of the guys looks over his shoulder and says, <laughs> all right, we're through. No thanks to you guys. <laughs> At least pretend to help. At least be like, is there an extra? No? Okay, well, okay. So they all go in. There's a toilet, a bathtub, a bed, microwave, and a TV. When when we say toilet, there's it's it's like a bucket, right? Yeah. Everything's really gross. It's very dungeony. They turn on a light and see a woman chained to the wall, and she barely has a pulse. <sighs> Stabler carries her out to the ambulance. I know that she was like hurt and stuff, but the way that he just carried her and was like running down the stairs, he was just she was he could he's so strong, you know. Mm-hmm. He could just like yeah. Ugh, okay. Okay. Diamond nips. Go ahead. (laughs) Toots finds the tunnel exit on the exterior of the building, probably where Horace was coming in and out of. And Munch and the other officers Mm -hmm. found Horace's diaries in there as well. In the precinct, the squad's examining these new findings, the diaries, etc. The victim from the tunnel is still unconscious. She's dehydrated and malnourished, so they've got to wait to talk to her. Huang reads an entry out loud about the first victim. Then Munch reads one, and then Toots does. They were all about controlling and humiliating women. Toots is like this guy's sick he hates women like the way he said it yeah toots can you believe it steves <laughs> he hates women it's like i love women have you met my wife coco she's incredible <laughs> <laughs> Stabe makes note that the age, race, and body type of all of these different victims are different, so there's no pattern in that way, and says he's mm-hmm. a collector. Magazines, toilet paper, women, they're all the same to him. Benson notices mm. that the walls in the tunnel don't match the background in the photos, so he probably takes them someplace else to marry them, and the other place could be <laughs> where he's hiding. What? You're like... <gasps> Photos. Did I say? Did I say that like that? It was just funny. You're like photos. They don't match the photos. Uh, All right. So yeah, that could be where he's hiding is at this place. One of the women in the photos. No, one of the women in the. Fo- One of the women in the photos, if he actually let them all go like he did with Hillary, could have been who cut his genitals off. And I was like, oh, Mm. I forgot his missing dick was the whole reason we were here. I got really into the the dungeon of everything. This guy doesn't have a dick Mm -hmm. or balls. He couldn't tell the cops that he knew the woman who did it to him because then he'd be incriminating himself. Just then a social worker, Lauren White, comes into the precinct with a 17-year-old client, Neva, who says someone kidnapped her and raped her in a dungeon. Neva called Lauren when she saw the story on the news. Well, boop, 
right there. She's right there. Neva's photo is on the wall with all the others. Neva played mm-hmm. Courtney, Craig Robinson's wife in Hot Tub Time Machine 1 and 2. Oh, my God. Okay, well, now it's time to do some interviews. Stabler's talking to Neva about what happened in the dungeon. She says the man who kidnapped her made her call him sir and keep a diary of when she ate, used the bathroom, when he raped mm. her, etc. Cut to Hillary being interviewed by Benson. She recalls the same humiliating and controlling things Sir made her do as Neva does. Mm -hmm. Both women say the wedding took place at another location. Neva said she was blindfolded, put in the car, and then taken to some shitty hotel where her blindfold was removed. And she knew that the hotel manager had seen her, but she couldn't scream for help because Horace had threatened to kill her family if she screamed. Hillary and Neva had the same experience. He made them go up to the hotel room, called it the honeymoon suite where he had flowers, candles, cheap champagne. He took photos of them and they were raped. Hillary says the hotel window faced an alleyway, but she remembers hearing boats like they were near the river and she could also hear helicopters nearby. Lead. Later at the precinct, Munch and Toots and Stabler try and figure out where the hotel could be that is near a helipad and the river. Munch thinks it's near the Chelsea Piers. Stabler's like, we gotta go. Where's Benson? Well, Benson left with Hillary a bit ago, so they can't wait, so the three of them take off. Munch, Toots, and Stabler go to the Lydia Hotel, and they show someone at the front desk Horace's photo. He doesn't recognize him. Bullshit. Stabler says, would a little incentive help? Dude pops out of his chair and says, show me the money. Toots grabs this dude and fucking presses his head against the front desk and says, I'll let you fucking keep your teeth, bitch. And the guy's like, okay. uh." (laughs) He's here, but he's busy and tells him where the room is. I know. The detectives bust through the door to the room and see Benson already there. What? Horace is dead. What? What? Benson says he was dead when she got there and she leaves the room. We're still in the hotel room. Benson, Munch, and Stabler are in the room while Horace is taken out on stretcher. The medical examiner told him that Horace had been dead less than an hour from a stabbing with a smooth-edged knife. Maybe the one that sliced off his wiener? And balls? (laughs) Sorry for the pause. So Munch takes off with the body to the morgue to see if it's the same weapon. Benson gets up to leave and Stabler says... Are you fucking protecting her? And she's like, got that shock look on her face. She says, are you asking me if I'm covering for Hillary? So he begins to start questioning her cop style, like kind of circling around her a little bit. Mm -hmm. Benson had dropped Hillary off a couple hours ago at her mom's house. Stabler points out that they're estranged. Benson's like, but Hillary wanted to see her mom. Benson gets mad that Stabler is literally interrogating her. He's like, why didn't you come back to the precinct? She didn't go back to the precinct because she had a hunch. She had checked five hotels and the Lydia was her sixth. Stabler gets mad that she went without backup and tells her she's out of control. And I'm like, what a fucking thing for that man to say to anybody. No shit. Benson says, I never had control of this one. Remember, I lost my judgment. Stabler says, everyone makes mistakes. Get over it. Mm -hmm. Fucking, ooh, Benson rolls her eyes super hard and takes off. You know she's got to be taking this one super personally. Yeah, I mean, for as much as we beat her up for not reacting, she's beating herself up so much more for not responding to this Mm -hmm. woman, for not believing her. Mm-hmm. Back at the precinct, Benson and Stabler walk into the squad room and see all these women being interviewed by detectives. Every single one of them are from the wedding photos found at Horace's place. Mm. They all came in after they saw the news story, and they were all kidnapped after Hillary. Fuck. Oh, God. Here, Benson, have some guilt fries with your guilt sandwich. Wash it down with some guilt aid. Guilt, you feel bad. This is your fault. <laughs> 
Benson quietly gets a box and goes over to her locker and starts packing it up in front of everybody and is like, don't come talk to me. Don't look at me. I'm packing up my locker. As she's like looking behind her, like, yeah. Like her packing her locker is the same as DJ Tanner running up the stairs after she gets caught doing something wrong. And then Danny Tanner walks in and he's like, hey, she's sprawled across her bed with her face in her pillow. And he's like, hey, listen, Deej. And then the music turns on. Do, 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 or however, whatever. Full house music. So Craig. So this is what Craig does. But he goes up to her by her locker. He's like, Jesus Christ. That's why we shouldn't hire women. He goes over and she says, I just can't fucking do it anymore. She regrets not listening to Hillary and brings up her own mother's rape and how her mom was drunk, just like Hillary, when she was raped. Like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Mm. I knew that about my mom and I still didn't believe her. Craigan goes, cool, quit then. Throw away all the good you've ever done and will ever do over one fucking mistake. Bye. Tough love. And Benny's like... She closes her locker, throws the box on top, and goes back to her desk. She grabs a photo of the women Mm. in the wedding dresses and tells Stabler, come on, we're going to go find out which one of these women killed Horace. She's not done fucking ever, we find out. Yeah. So Benson and Stabler go back to Grand Central Station into the subway tunnels, and they show Samael the photos of the women. He was asked if any of them were the archangel he spoke about. He immediately identified Hillary. Mm. Mm Mm-mm. So then, beep bop, boo doop boop, they go over to Juliet Barclay's house. Hillary and her mom are hanging out in silk robes, drinking tea. Ugh, good for them. They both wear these, like, gorgeous silk robes. I know. I noticed, of course. Benny tells the women that Horace was found, and Hillary immediately jumps up and says she needs to see him. She just wants to see him fucking locked up. They tell her, mm-mm, he was murdered. She goes, good, I hope he suffered. And Juliet asks if they know who killed him. Benson goes, yeah, it was you, Hillary. And Hillary's like, dude, I fucking hated him more than anybody, but I absolutely did not kill this guy. So right as they're like, Hillary, we're arresting you, her mom jumps in and she's like, it was me. I needed to protect my daughter, arrest me. So Benson goes, okay, I guess, fine. She arrests Juliet as Hillary's crying and tells him that they're wrong and they're making a mistake. And Juliet's like, I love you. Right. Okay, so now we're in the precinct. We're in the interview room with Juliet, Benson, and Stabler. Juliet says Horace murdered her daughter's soul and she feels like she made it worse by not believing Hillary. Mm. She did what any mother would do. And I was thinking, I'm like, I wonder if Tasha would. And I think you would. Would I kill somebody for my children? I think you would. Oh, 100%. Juliet says she spent years blaming Hillary for her problems and needed to make things right. Stabler asks how Juliet knew who Horace was and how did she find him? Hillary recognized him when she saw him leaving his apartment a week ago. She reached out to her mom, freaking out. They didn't go to the police because Benson didn't believe Hillary four years ago, which I was like... Ouch. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Juliet says that she followed him for a few days, then fucking castrated him at the subway station. She says she only cut his junk off because she didn't want to kill him just in case a girl was being held. Juliet knew where he was because he didn't go to the dungeon that night. He was hanging around with the sex workers at the Lydia Hotel. She knocked on his door, asked if he wanted company. He let her in and she fucking stabbed him. The knife was thrown down the sewer a couple of blocks from the hotel. Good for her. Good for her. Good for her. Good for her. How much can a banana cost, Michael? $10? There's always money in the banana stand. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're in the chambers of Judge Petrovsky. I fucking hate and love her so much. Mm-hmm. Juliet's lawyer Granger argues that her confession was a desperate attempt to protect Hillary. Novak says, dream on. She was properly Mirandized before the confession. 
Granger says it doesn't matter. The confession is a patent violation. So the patent violation is the Fourth Amendment made applicable to the states by the 14th Amendment. It prohibits the police from making a warrantless and non-consensual entry into a suspect's home in order to make a routine felony arrest. Felony arrest specifically. Right. Novak says Juliet wasn't arrested until she was outside of the apartment. Granger says that she was forcibly dragged out by the police. Novak says Julia wasn't cuffed or restrained. Granger says she was intimidated. Two armed police officers woke her up in the middle of the night and threatened her daughter before her very eyes. Mm. Novak says she volunteered to go to the precinct. Granger says under extreme duress. Judge tells Novak she and SVU should know better and rules out Juliet's confession and leaves. Granger wants to talk plea deals because he's all confident, but Novak fucking shuts him down. He says, you don't have anything, but Novak says, pfft. I have the spontaneous confession in the apartment. Juliet said, I did it. What more do I need? And he was like, now we're in the trial. Novak tells the jury that Horace was a major piece of shit for sure. And she'd love to convict him and send his ass to jail. But she can't because Juliet took the law into her own hands. She tells the jury that she understands the impulse to take revenge. We all fucking do. But no one is above the law. And she says, quote, murder is murder no matter who commits it or why. Now it's Granger's turn. He says he agrees with Novak that murder is murder no matter who commits it, but that they don't know who killed Horace. Juliet had motive for sure. She was indicted, yes, but motive and indictment isn't evidence. Any of the women hurt by Horace could have the same motivations as Juliet and kill him. Granger says that it was a woman who knew where he was, had motive, went there alone, and had a desperate desire to, quote, see Horace pay for her sins and atone for her own. Dude points the finger at Benson like it's fucking Salem, oh my God, (laughs) and says, it was her who killed Horace. And everybody was like, oh, well, gasp. Well, this is something they're going to need to talk about. So Novak and Benson are in chambers. The grand jury is calling Benson a subject. She went to the hotel alone and was found with the body. Mm-hmm. Novak tells Benny she needs to admit that she messed up four years ago, went to the hotel room alone, but deny that she killed Horace. And Novak leaves, walks out. Benson and Stabler are left alone there. Benson's like, Novak didn't even ask me if I did or didn't kill Horace. And Stabler is like, well, yeah, if she asked you and you said yes... And then put you on the stand to deny it would be suborning perjury, which means to knowingly allow or persuade a witness to lie on the stand. Mm -hmm. So he means Novak doesn't want to know if Benny did it. She just wants her to deny it. And Benny's like, wait a tick. You didn't ask me if I did it either. (laughs) Saber's like, yeah, I know you didn't do it because you would have shot the bastard with a gun Mm -hmm. because you don't have a penis. So it's like (laughs) your dick. Back in the trial, Benson's on the stand. She explains that she went searching for the hotel Hillary and Neva were brought to. When she got to the Lydia, she didn't want to wait and risk another woman getting hurt if Horace already had someone in his room. Benson says when she walked into the room, she saw Horace dead on the floor. She didn't kill him. He was dead already. Granger questions her in this nasally voice that I don't think is this guy's real voice. I think this is a choice for him. He's like, I'm a shitty lawyer. I'm a shitty defending lawyer guy. He's like... Detective Benson, you didn't believe Hillary four years ago. Six victims came after her. Kind of your fault, I suppose. You probably wanted to redeem yourself or kill him with no witnesses. Right? And Novak's like, objection, nerd. (laughs) And the judge is like, yeah. This guy goes on and asks Benny to explain why she didn't radio for backup right away when she found Horace. 
Hmm. There was a 10 minute gap in time from when Benson arrived and when Stabler and the other detectives got there. Why didn't you call? <laughs> the way he transitions. Why didn't you call when you found the body? <laughs> Benson says she didn't call right away because she was fucking stunned. Granger calls her a murderer. He brings up the past two armed perps that she had shot and killed. And he's like, two killings, no charges. I guess third time's the charm. In the precinct, Benson and Cragen are chatting about the trial. Novak doesn't know if she'll be able to change the jury's mind about Benson being the killer. The jury doesn't need to believe that Benny's the killer. It just needs to create enough reasonable doubt for them to acquit Juliet. Mm -hmm. Novak can't go after Hillary because she's the victim and the jury's not going to be down with it. Munch walks in with this specialist dude, Nick Patraco? Oh my god, this guy, his he's so fucking pumped to he be is. there. He's all smiles. He's shaking everybody's hands. He's like, I can't believe I get to help. I'm a guy that does gold stuff. I'm here. I'm so excited. It's almost like he's just acting like himself that's excited to get a role on yeah. SVU. He's just like, hey, everybody, when he walks into the They're scene. They're like, you need to be high energy. You need to be excited. He's like, oh, fucking done, you guys. Oh my god. Marishka, iced tea. <laughs> <laughs> He's a forensic metallurgist. Metallurgist. So he specializes in fucking metal. He's really into Lamb of God. Sorry. Metal joke. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> so Coroner Warner had called him in to help identify the murder weapon when she discovered gold flakes in Horace's stab wound. This guy gets fucking jacked to the max. He's like, the knife used to kill Horace left gold particles in him. Okay, so I was able to discover that the gold was 99% gold and 1% rhodium. <laughs> this can be found in gold from Syria from the mid 9th century. You guys, isn't this so interesting? And they were like, um, no, but that sounds like something that could be at Juliet's antique shop. They're like, sounds old and boring. He's like, I promise you guys it's not. <laughs> so as this is going on, I'm like, where's the twist? Where's the twist? It is a coming. Because we're like, um, we're at the end. Yeah. We're, we have like a minute left, pretty much. And like, what could the twist be? It's not a big deal if they're like, well, actually, it was Hillary again that we think because she took the knife because she steals from her mom. Like, I don't know. Like, it wasn't going to be anything crazy, but it is. They go to Juliet's house. CSU is examining for blood. Oh, it's Ryan O'Halloran. So a listener gave me shit for how I pronounced O'Halloran when we first met him. I'm going to argue that in that episode, the late great Munchie Richard Belzer pronounced it the same way I did, but who knows? Mm -hmm. So the way I pronounce it, I Midwest butcher it. And I know that it's my accent because I say O'Halloran. O'Halloran. And it's actually mm -hmm. pronounced O'Halloran. You know, the greats are good. Okay. But it reminds me of when Daryl Whitefeather in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, the Peterson case, it's actually pronounced Peterson. <laughs> Peterson. <laughs> but yeah, I, do, I, I don't say O'Halloran. I'm not like, oh my God, it's Ryan O'Halloran. Yeah, right. No blood was found via luminol. <laughs> All right. No, there was no blood found with the luminol. But I mean, they're going over this thing. They had painstakingly combed this woman's place. And then Toots walks in. He's like, oh, my God, you guys, I looked under the sink and I found this knife and it's been cleaned. But I think there's fucking blood all over it. And then Ryan O'Halloran sprays the shit on it and it glows blue like a fucking lightsaber. Mm -hmm. They need to get that knife to Corner Warner for the DNA analysis. I wonder whose blood is on it. Why did she tell them that she threw it in the sewer? Well, it was a fucking antique. Antique, an antique. knife. So she's like, I can't get rid of it. I'm going to clean 
this shit up and sell it. Yeah. Now we're in court. Granger questions Hillary and tries to line the details of the night of Horace's murder up with Benson being the killer. He says that since Benson dropped Hillary off at her mom's house at 10, Benson would have had more than enough time to kill Horace. Novak is up. Hillary doesn't think that her mom could have killed Horace. Novak wants to know why the Syrian sacrificial knife found at Juliet's house had traces of Horace's blood on it. Gorman is like, fuck this. I want a sidebar. As Novak and Gorman are approaching the bench, Hillary keeps saying that her mom couldn't have done it. Gorman tells her just to not say another word to shut the fuck up. She keeps talking and saying that Julia only confessed to save her. All of a sudden, Hillary tells the court that she did it, not her mom. Her mom pops up and tells her to stop. The judge even tries to stop her. Hillary says she needs to explain. She says that she still had a key to her mom's store back when she used to steal from the store and sell for drugs. She stole the knife and castrated and killed Horace. She tells her mom that she doesn't have to protect her anymore. Novak requests a mistrial. She thinks Granger knew Hillary would confess. Hillary's outburst poisoned the jury. Granger says that the only reason why Novak wants a mistrial is because they want to investigate and try Julia again, but that's double jeopardy. The judge doesn't grant the mistrial. The judge asks Novak if she has a reasonable doubt that Juliet is not guilty. Novak super pauses because she doesn't want to fucking lose her case even though it sounds like Juliet isn't guilty. This is why her system is fucked up. She says, yes. Novak tells the judge the people have no choice but to dismiss the case against Juliet. The judge dismisses the case and tells Juliet she's free to go. And then did you notice that like when they panned on her face, Hillary was behind her with her hand on her shoulder? And I'm like, bitch, you were on the stand three seconds ago. Like, what the fuck? That was a weird like I didn't even editing thing. Benson and Stabler go over to Hillary and Juliet who are hugging. Hillary holds their arms up to be arrested like in a super dramatic way, like a Frankenstein way. She was like, uh. <laughs> Stabler arrests Hillary. Hillary tells her mom not to worry as she is taken away. Back at the precinct, everyone is taken off for the night, which is weird. They don't leave. Benson's going to stay behind. Hillary's sleeping in the cells and she's going to wait for her to wake up and take her to central booking herself. Stabler tells her that Hillary made her own choices. Benson says, doesn't mean I have to feel good about her going to jail for murder. Novak walks in and says, she's not. Granger gave her a gigantic VHS tape. <laughs> it's the size of a twin mattress. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in the holding cell, Benson says to Hillary, venti whole milk latte. That's what you ordered at the coffee shop when your mother murdered Corman. We saw you on their surveillance tape. Hillary asks Benson if they're going to arrest her mom. Benson tells her they can't. It would be double fucking jeopardy. Starring Ashley Judd. I love that movie, by the way. I know. Hillary turns away and smiles. She says she doesn't mind going to jail for castrating him. She tells Benson about what happened on the subway platform. She said she had been following fucking Gorman for days looking for for the perfect time to kill him. She approached him on the subway platform. She told him that she would tell all of his secrets. He told her to fucking go ahead and no one would believe a quote, whoring junkie. Oh, she hit him on the back of the head and drug him to the end of the platform. She had the perfect chance to kill him, but she decided to castrate him to make him suffer more than if she killed him. So was there just like a guy hanging out there and she was like, here, take this junk? Like what? Yeah, I mean. And what about this white jacket? Where's She was wearing a white jacket. There's blood on it like what the fuck maybe she took her jacket off before she cut him you know what i mean i don't know i don't know the logistics of it was weird. the crime but she and her mom can be together forever now and be like remember that time that we completely fucked the justice system 
was there just this guy just standing with God with Samuel just like maybe that was her like did she know him maybe that was her regular stop and she was aware of the guy did she know him from her like drug days oh that's possible too but she couldn't have called him that's weird that that whole thing doesn't make sense so anyway she castrated him she told her mom about the castration Hillary found out that her mom killed Horace after Benson and Stabler came to arrest Hillary mm-hmm. at the apartment she admits that her mom killed Horace for her Hillary says she couldn't let her go to jail Novak is weirdly in the corner <laughs> out of nowhere and says she belongs there. What happened to you is horrible and I'm sorry, but nothing gives you the right to lie or your mother the right to murder. Okay, good one, Thanks, Novak. Novak. Hillary says, well, he'll never torture another woman again, will he? Where the fuck is this jacket? Why don't they talk about this? But fucking toy fucking Yoda. It was a good episode. It was so good. Toyota, good episode. I have got the most insane story for you. I'm assuming you don't know. What if you know about it already? Do you know who John Jamelski is? No, I don't know anything about whenever you do these things. John Jamelski was born on May 9th, 1935. He grew up and spent his life in... Six days after Gabe's birthday, John Jamelski was born in 1935. He grew up and spent his life in a suburb outside of Syracuse, New York. He married his wife, Dorothy Richmond, in 1959. She was a preschool teacher. Everybody loved her. And Jamelski worked a number of blue-collar jobs throughout their life. As he did, he saved enough to begin investing in real estate that stretched from New York to California, and his net worth rose over a million dollars. He actually bought up all the land around his home as well and developed it. So his house sat in the middle of this really nice neighborhood. Jamelski could regularly be seen collecting bottles. He had these bottles meticulously categorized in his basement, some of value, some for recycling. His yard was also a virtual junkyard of rusty shit. He was a hoarder. Mm. And he was considered eccentric by the neighbors. By the late 80s, he was the curmudgeonly old man you didn't want to get in line next to at your local polling place, if you know what I mean. Wink. Yeah. Uh, He had a lot of strong opinions and wanted to talk about it. Mm. The Jamelskis also had three sons over the years. And unfortunately, in 1988, Dorothy became extremely sick with cancer and was bedridden Mm. until her death in 1999. So she was sick for many, many years. Although Jamelski was eccentric and, you know, ran his mouth and whatever else, the neighborhood considered him a harmless old man, just set in his ways, whatever. Fucking meanwhile, in 1988, in the onset of Dorothy's illness, Jamelski picked up a 14-year-old indigenous girl he found wandering in the area and took her to his mom's house with the intention of raping her. Oh my god. He decided that he wanted to keep her so he chained her in an abandoned well and told her that if she tried to escape he would kill her brother. After a year What? After a year he built a bunker under the backyard of his home that he called the dungeon. To access the dungeon one would have to crawl through a seven foot long tunnel to one of two 12 by 12 concrete windowless rooms with eight foot high ceilings, okay? Mm -hmm. In these rooms was the barest of bones of amenities for survival. A piece of plywood with a thin sheet of foam to sleep on, a portable toilet, one of those that's basically a lawn chair with a toilet lid on it and a bucket underneath. There was a tub that sat on raised pallets for baths from a garden hose. Because there was no plumbing, the water would sit until it evaporated. So this made for a damp and moldy environment. 
Oh, God. The prisoner's only source of fresh air was through a pipe. It was dirty, and he would feed her just enough to keep her alive. He kept this girl there for two years. No. Taking video of the many <sighs> sexual assaults, as well as forcing her to keep a diary recording every sexual encounter. When he decided it was time to let her go, he took her all the way to Nevada and bought her a plane ticket to fly back to Syracuse. And she told her family nothing. Around 1995 or 96, Jamelski abducted another 14-year-old girl. This time, she was a Latina runaway. He got her to come with him. Now, how do we not know about this? And this isn't been like documentaries. I, like, this is crazy. It, it's it's wild. It's it's insane. What's his name again? John Jamelski. So he abducts another 14-year-old girl. This time she was a Latina runaway. I don't have the names of most of the victims because any of them that were underage, I don't have the names for. He got her to come with him by telling her he would pay her to deliver a package for him. And once he got her to the dungeon, he locked the door behind her. She was subjected to the same abuse as the first victim before Jamelski blocked blindfolded her, drove her around, and dropped her off at her mom's apartment building. She was captive for several months. This girl went directly to the police to give a description of this guy. Mm -hmm. She couldn't identify where she had been taken, just that her kidnapper was an old white guy with a birthmark on his forehead. This girl had her own history of drug use, so they didn't think she was credible. The cops barely looked into it and dropped the investigation. On August 31st, 1997, Jamelski abducted his third victim. This time, it was a 53-year-old Vietnamese woman. He forced her into his car, took her to an abandoned house, and raped her. After the assault, he tied her to a stack of cardboard and took her to the dungeon where she, again, was sexually assaulted on a daily basis for nine months. Oh my god. He also made her do little jobs for him around the house. God. On May 23rd, 1998, Jamelski drove this woman to a Greyhound bus station, gave her $50, and left. She, too, went directly to Syracuse police. The police Police claimed that none of the leads got them anywhere, so they had to drop it. But this survivor said that they didn't believe her from the start. So on May 11th, 2001, a 26-year-old white woman named Jennifer Spaulding was walking in downtown Syracuse, tripping on acid in some pretty shitty weather when Jamelski rolled up on her. He offered her a ride home, which she accepted because the weather was bad and she wasn't in her right state of mind. Mm -hmm. And he took her to the dungeon. She fought Jamelski's daily attacks, but because she fought back, she was burned with cigars when she would do that. Jamelski told this prisoner that he was part of a sex slavery ring. He told her the police were also a part of this enterprise, so going to them would do nothing. There were different victims. He would show them this police badge that he happened to find in his treasure hunting, collecting, whatever, and told them he was, you know, part of the cops. He was just seeking out victims who would not be listened to and had their own yeah. history. Again, women that were experiencing homelessness, any of the women underage of girls, they were runaways, women of color. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jennifer Spaulding was the only white woman out of all of his victims, mm-hmm. but she had a history of drug use. So at one point she begged him to write home to her parents just to let them know that she was alive. Mm-hmm. And he allowed it, but said that she had to tell them that she was in a drug rehab facility. Okay. Uh. She didn't realize this is what would happen, but she sent this letter to her parents and her parents had considered her a missing person and had gone to the police, everything else. They took this letter to the police and they were like, Oh, well this confirms that she's alive and well. And so they closed the investigation. Oh, God. Well, Jamelski eventually released her. She went straight to the cops and they didn't fully believe her. One, because of the letter that she wrote from rehab. Also because Mm -hmm. her rape kit returned with no evidence that she had been sexually assaulted. (sighs) 
But Jamelski intentionally didn't assault her in the days leading up to her release to avoid that very situation. Right. She was able to give a little more information and reported to the police that he was driving a tan 1974 Mercury Comet. They searched, found one hit, and her description didn't match exactly, so they closed the entire case. Jesus. She wasn't even close because Jamelski drove a fucking tan 1975 Mercury Comet. Okay. Jesus. Like, these are some pretty fucking serious crimes. These are serious accusations, and the cops are barely allowing themselves to be inconvenienced by it. I know. In October of 2022, Jamelski picked up his fifth victim, a 16-year-old black runaway in Syracuse. Her sister called her Frenchie, so that's what I'm going to call her. Mm Mm-hmm. I think her name was Francesca, just because when you see images of the dungeon in big letters on the wall, it says Francesca was here. So I think Mm. that that was positive, just based on her nickname and that. um, But anyway, so her sister called her Frenchie. So we're calling her Frenchie. In October of 2002, Jamelski picked up his fifth victim, a 16-year-old black runaway in Syracuse. At 8 or 9 p.m. that October night, Jamelski pulled up to a couple of gals hanging on a stoop in Syracuse and asked the girls if they wanted to go to a party. He was disguised as a young black man, and that's why Frenchie wasn't put off by him. He was in full blackface and shit. What? The young girls were like, yeah, and Frenchie hopped into the vehicle, okay? She's 16. She's Nothing can happen to you when you're 16. Before the other right. friend could get in, Jamelski drove off with the girl in the car. Mm. He took her to the dungeon and told her if she would just cooperate and stay there and do what he said, have sex with him and keep a diary of it, he would protect her. He pulled the same story that he did last time with Jennifer, except he added a little spin to it. He told Frenchie that he worked for very powerful people who were part of selling kids to a child abuse sex ring in Japan, Mm. but if she did what he wanted, he wouldn't allow her to be sold. Frenchie was the wrong fucking girl, okay? Good. She comes up with this plan to befriend him, all right? She was so fucking clever. Mm. She started by asking him to buy her cigarettes. Gabe, this girl didn't even smoke, but he Mm -hmm. bought her cigarettes and would take her outside, chained of course, and let her have a cigarette in the backyard. I mean, the first thing she did asking him to buy her cigarettes was a total test. She was like, I'm going to see what I can get away with and I'm going to start small and I'm going to work my way up. She could see that there were other victims that had been there. There was writing on the wall Mm -hmm. that had been painted over. There were different items there that she knew she wasn't the first one. So she didn't know if she was going to get murdered or what, you know, she had no idea. Mm -hmm. So as soon as Frenchie got him comfortable with that, with taking her outside so she could smoke, she asked him if she could sleep upstairs with him instead of in the dungeon. She had the whole girlfriend thing going. She's like, we're tight. Yeah. I actually like you. He eventually agreed to let her sleep upstairs, but said that she had to go back downstairs in the morning so that the powerful men that he worked for didn't catch her up there. Yeah. She was so convincing that she gained his trust and was allowed to go for outings with him. He took her to the park, to the mall, to karaoke, to the skating rink. She was kind of running shit to a degree, but she never tried to run or scream during these outings for a couple of reasons. Okay. First was that on initially arriving to his house, he gave her clothes to his dog and told her that if she were to ever run, his dog would be able to find her because of the scent and whatever else. Even more so, he had given her a written list of every one of her family members and told her that he and the people he worked for would kill them if she escaped. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got everybody's name, so she didn't want to risk that. 
After about seven months, he told her he was going to take her with him to Canada because he had some fucking weird-ass bottle collector business to attend to up there. He was, like, selling antique bottles, some shit. Mm -hmm. So because she had found evidence of these other prisoners and didn't know if he was going to kill her or not, she was like, I need to take my opportunity. If we go to Canada and he kills me and, like, puts me in the woods or something, she's like, I got to do this sooner rather than later. So, So their first stop is at this recycling plant east of Syracuse doing some bottle selling or whatever the fuck he does there. Um, and he go he goes a lot. He goes like once a week. So he knows the person behind the counter and they're chit-chatting and whatever. And Frenchie turns to him and goes, you know what? I wonder if my family's moved. Do you mind if I call my pastor to see if they've got a new address? I'd really like to talk to my pastor if I could. And he was like, I guess. He gets the phone book from the guy behind the counter and finds the church, calls the number and hands her the phone. She gets the phone and she goes, oh my God, duh. He's probably not there right now. We should call his cell phone. Mm-hmm. So Jamelski's like, oh, okay, sure. What's his number? Boom. She gives him her sister's home phone number. When her Mm -hmm. sister answers the phone, she's like, Frenchie, where the fuck are you? Like, everybody's been freaking out for months. And Frenchie's pretending to have this conversation with the pastor, right? But then she notices that Jamelski is talking the ear off the counter person and she whispers mm-hmm. to her sister a few of the horrific details of what she's been going through. Her sister's name's Angie, by the way. Good for her. So Angie's like, okay, you need to memorize my cell phone number. Bah, 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 here it is. And get back in touch with me. Get back in touch with me. They hang up. So I'll tell you, Wikipedia has a very different series of the next few events. Right. But I got Frenchie's specific story from watching an interview with Frenchie and civil rights attorney Charles Bonner, who represented her in a civil case against Jamelski. Spoiler alert, Jamelski gets caught. But anyway, I'm taking their story over Wikipedia. Okay, so Jamelski and Frenchie are driving to Canada when she says, you know what? I didn't really get a chance to talk to my pastor because you kind of rushed me back there, boyfriend. So would you let me stop and call him one more time before we get into Canada? I would super appreciate it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh my God, we need to get going. But okay, I guess. I have bottle caps. Jeez. Yeah. I have important business. He pulls off to Fayette Dodge car dealership and asks them if they can use their phone. She calls her sister again, this time on her cell phone. Her sister had been spending the time between these calls, which was about 30 minutes, getting in touch with the police. Mm -hmm. When Angie answered, she asked Frenchie where she was and handed the phone to a female police officer who told Frenchie to stay there because the cops were on their way. So this fucking little survivor pretended to have a nice long chat with her pastor while police made their way to the dealership. Mm. It was 2003 when Jamelski was arrested. Wait, wait, how long was it before the cops got there? Five minutes. Oh, that's it? Okay. Yeah, because, well, they were already on deck, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't know if she had, I mean, she was still in Syracuse at the time, so the cops were just, like, on ready to be able to go get this person. Mm -hmm. But yeah, in this interview that I watched, Angie said that it was five minutes between the time that they knew where she was and when the cops got there. Oh, my God. And all these cops pulled in, and Jamelski's like, what the fuck? And Frenchie said that she just broke down sobbing because it was over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure he was like, how could you do this to me? Oh, God. (laughs) God. I mean, the delusion doesn't end. The delusion does not end here. So thanks to Frenchie, this amazing young woman, police found out there had been four other victims and were absolutely horrified at what they later found in Jamelski's dungeon. Among the items that we had already talked about, there were 15 years of calendars with records of B, T, and S. B for bath, S for sex, which actually was rape, and T for teeth brushing. 
Okay, 15 years of calendars. This guy having them record this shit. When he was mm. interviewed by police, fucking Jamelski couldn't comprehend that what he did was illegal. He didn't consider chaining these women and girls up in a bunker for up to 12 hours a day kidnapping. And he considered the rape consensual as well. The guy actually thought that he was going to get community service for his crimes. And the prosecution was like, um, yeah, you're facing five counts of first degree kidnapping. Okay. What? Yeah. Was it because he, he thought women were like gerbils or something? Because you, well, you get he, more than community service for doing that to dogs. No shit. You know what I mean? So I'm not sure. I mean, I can't speak to the mental capacity of this person, but. I mean, it's he, obviously not great. So. Not great. Not, uh, he yeah. obviously, yeah. <laughs> he was diagnosed with mentally not great by the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> he uh in case you were wondering um he did say that his wife who was very sick up in her bedroom almost the entire time he was doing this was completely unaware oh i thought she was dead that this was so mm. he started abducting women and girls in 1988 the year that she got sick that's right okay and she was bedridden until 1999 11 years later and he had kidnapped i wonder how he treated his wife like was he a piece of shit to her did he just like I don't know. Hold it all in until she got sick and just became a fucking weirdo. Up until 1988, he was just considered this curmudgeon eccentric man. So I don't know if there were any other crimes. I don't know if there were any other victims. But he said that this was his solution because his wife got sick. She couldn't have sex anymore. So he was going to just like fucking funnel Viagra and just rape women. Oh, my God. This isn't. So, okay, now the deal on the table was he had to reveal all information on his assets. This dude had substantial wealth in real estate holdings, remember, and on mm -hmm. all of the prior victims. Jamelski's lawyer asked the judge for leniency, and Jamelski expressed remorse and apologized to the victims and their family. At his sentencing, Judge Anthony Alloy said, quote, You are a sick coward. You're an evil man. You're a kidnapper uh -huh. and rapist, a master manipulator of people and the truth. But your reign of terror is over, and told Jamelski that he hoped he died in prison. He was convicted and sentenced to 18 to 30 years concurrently for each of the five victims. So instead of serving the sentences consecutively, meaning back to back, he served them concurrently, which means at the same time. So he would be getting 18 mm -hmm. to 30 years total, but that was part of the deal so that he would reveal all of his uh, financial assets and give the information that wasn't readily available unless he gave it. Yeah. Also, okay, because of this, they got all this money information. All of his wealth was split between the survivors. So it was about a million dollars split between five people. And also anything that would bring him income in the future would immediately go to them as well. Like when they sold his house, the the bunker was demolished uh, and filled in and whatever. And when they sold his house, they got that money, even though his house sold for almost nothing. Nobody wanted that fucking house. Yeah. And if he were to make money on any kind of book or movie or something like that, the money would just, all of it would go straight to the victims good fucking good how much is that how much is that per person yeah well, five people over like well five dollars. it's two hundred thousand off the bat but then there's you know future stuff and whatever yeah i can't math so i was just asking yeah which is nothing it's a drop in the bucket it'll barely afford you a lifetime of therapy yeah. to get through living life after that kind of experience hopefully they had help like investing it well i don't know i know i don't know Okay, so doo -doo 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 -doo, December of 2020, he appears before mm -hmm. the parole board. First of all, I can't imagine okay. being on that Zoom call. This is 2020 pandemic. It's a Zoom call. The parole board was like, hey, dude, you've been in prison for 18 years. Tell us about why you're there and your thoughts on it. And this fucking guy just starts 
victim blaming and denying any wrongdoing. No. Just totally like, I don't even get it. This is one of the things he said during that hearing. Quote, they're very promiscuous. They were very manipulating, but I should not have taken part in any of this that I did with them. I had a bunker and people knew I had a bunker. We partied a lot out there and I was approached every now and then by someone that said it would be a good idea for a friend of hers that's a runaway to be there rather than out on the streets. And they came and as a trade-off, we had sex. No. Most of the time, the door wasn't even closed, but there were occasions over 12 hours that it was locked, yes. He was denied parole, so. Oh my God. Yeah, they were like, no. What the fuck? What the actual fuck? I know. I mean, no sane like, person what? on the parole board is going to be like, well, that makes sense. That's reasonable. No, they're like, you don't fucking get it. You held these people prisoner. I mean, reading yeah. some of these interviews and seeing some of these w with these women and how they described Jennifer in particular, I read this article of her experience there. So there's this big metal door and it's got a padlock on it. And she was constantly mm -hmm. thinking of ways that she could kill him. But he would come in the door and lock the padlock. So if she were to kill him, it would be a tomb. Oh, it was like a combination lock? Yes. Oh. And she was like, when God, he- it's fucking frustrating. For, like a lot of them didn't scream because of the threats and because of what could happen. And mm -hmm. Jennifer, remember, she was the one that was getting burned with cigars and shit. She got an abscess mm -hmm. on her back because she was burned so badly. She- said that she wore her hands raw like her hands were raw and bleeding from her scratching at the door and like trying to find a way out mm. so yeah the door wasn't open to this quote party place you know obviously nobody believes that shit right. but he was denied parole yeah. the dude's in his fucking late 80s he's going to just rot away dead in prison mm -hmm. the end toyota God. So he's not dead yet. No. And he should be. He was born in 1935. He's wow. like 88 years old or some shit. Jesus fucking Christ. 87. My God. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. Me Jeez. neither. It was crazy. I'm going to, I just like wrote his name. I'm going to look into all of it. I have to like mm -hmm. look into it. All right. All right. Next week, we got season five, episode 10, Shaken. Oh. I think this is a Stabler and Kragen episode. So, uh, Sorry, Tasha. A missing infant is found beaten in the bushes. I already know. It's called Shaken. Oh, really? No, it's because it's called fucking Shaken. Oh, okay. A missing infant is found beaten mm. in the bushes and they got to find out who no. done it. No, we don't. I hate it. Sorry, Tasha. We do. Anyway. We fucking do. Ugh. Well, transition. Rate and review us. <laughs> Email us at svupod at gmail.com. You can send us stuff at P.O. Box 176, DeForest, Wisconsin, 53532. Check out our Instagram at svupod. Join the Facebook group, svupod elite squad. I fucking love it. We also have a chat room attached to that called the walk and yes. talk. Hashtag little bit loud for indie pods. Finding them. If you are an indie pod, hashtag little bit loud. And join the Patreon. We got tons and tons of content. And people ask, you know, I'm all caught up what can i do join the patreon because there's a ton more shit there check out our store on our website we have merch and personalized videos <laughs> that's it yeah love you love bye, you, bye. <laughs> yeah, i don't know why it. but today seems like it's gonna be Pretty a great, great day, day. <laughs> it's pronounced half a voice and whoa i did that in nine different really <laughs> yeah. poorly done accents and none of them were german <laughs> and they all said wiener in unison they're like wiener they sang it like a barbershop quartet. Wiener, 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 wiener. And then somebody jumps in. Wiener. I can't, I can't do it. 
And to our Elite Squad patrons, Sonia W., Marissa M., Elki H., Annie G., Mary D., Andrew, Andrew, Rebecca D., Miranda B., Shelby W., Lex, Emily T., Kayla W., Mallory G., Bonita R., Marin, Vanessa, Amy P., Melanie G., Courtney Dubs, Ursula S., Kate H., Ooh, Ooh Younga, Catherine M., Kate P., Jessica S., Nicole M., Acacia V., Kelsey D., Jana M., Joshua H., Tammy J., Bear, Crystal, Lucy M., Trisha S., Sam D., Emily A., MacTac, Casey W., Abby W., Alexis J., Lauren T., Cassandra S., Kaylin B., Camille Z., Nisha G., Maggie D., Kay Allen, Katie M., Crystal B., Jessica P., Nada M., Sin, Christina D., Liana, Madison H., Emily, oh, you do. <laughs> Victoria B., Scout G., Melissa M., Desiree D., Drew B., Quentin S., Amberly C., Laura H., Luis M., Eliza W., Katarina G., Sapphire, Monica K., Katie S., Trish S., and Angela D. We fucking love you guys and appreciate you so much. You make it possible. You make it possible. You make 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 it possible we appreciate you bye 